Welcome to Inside Personal Growth Podcast. Deep dive with us as we unlock the secrets to personal development, empowering you to thrive. Here, growth isn't just a goal, it's a journey. Tune in, transform, and take your life to the next level by listening to just one of our podcasts. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. We have a returning guest, uh, Dr. Nate Klemp. And Nate actually wrote a book called The 80-20 Marriage. That was my last interview with him. And today we've got him coming on with a new Sounds True book. I always love stuff that Tammy Simon finds just the best people. It's called Open. I'm sorry if it's a little blurry, but there you go. Open, and the subtitle is Living with an Expansive Mind in a Distracted World. Nate, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me back, Greg. I always love our conversations. Well, you have a, a, you know, a person who is a philosopher, has some very deep thinking, and it requires people to get a little bit more critical about their thinking to dive into this topic. And I want to tell the listeners a tad about you. Today, you're in Boulder, and that's where you reside. And he's got a very cool website, folks, especially if you like drone footage. Um, it's nateklemp, K-L-E-M-P dot com. Just go there. Uh, there you can learn about him, the books. And we'll talk in a minute about the free open meditations that he has at the website as well. Um Nate grew up in Boulder, went to college at Stanford, uh, where he got hooked on jazz and philosophy. He said, there I made the pragmatic decision to become a philosopher rather than a jazz musician and attempt to learn how to live the good life. Uh, I then got an MA at Stanford, followed by a PhD at Princeton. Uh, at the end of the 10 years of this intense philosophical training, you said you didn't exactly achieve the goal of realizing human flourishing. You said, actually, you were burnt out. I uh, ended up working as an assistant professor at Pepperdine for four years, where he wrote The Morality of Spin, a book about the ethics of political rhetoric. Uh, <clears throat> then I left his cushy tenure track job in 2012 to continue exploring the crazy idea of philosophy as a way of life. Um, he then met his wife. They got married, and they have wrote, uh, actually, he got involved with Life XT, which we did an interviewing about, which is optimal well-being. Um, and that ended up merging with Mindful Magazine to become Mindful. And they co-authored a book called, you did with Eric, um, called Start Here, The Lifelong Skill of Well-Being. Then... Kaylee and you co-authored a book called The 80-80 Marriage, A New Model for Happier, Stronger Marriage. It was a Penguin Random House book. And now we're on to this, which is Open, Living with an Expansive Mind in a Distracted World, a February release uh, from Sounds True. Well, Nate, you have an interesting background, and you're the person that we could just talk to about this probably all day long. But let's start out this way. I read the introduction of the book. Uh, you speak about navigating between these two worlds, and you kind of used your own personal day as the, the the way to open it up, right? I go from here, and I get distracted, and I go there, and I open up this. And one where our phone and the physical world of getting your daughter off to school was the kind of analogy you were writing about, Right. Okay, I'm going to pour the cereal, and I'm going to go click back to the phone. Speak with the listeners about the addiction to the screens and how this closes us off, closes us off to our inner world, because it really does. We're so damn distracted. Yeah, well, thank you for the bio there, Greg. That was great. Yeah, the idea for the book really came from an experience that I started to notice in myself a few years ago. And it felt like the size of my mind was somehow getting smaller. And I know that's kind of an abstract idea, but what I mean by that is I would find myself feeling some sort of uncomfortable 
mind state or emotion or sensation. And then that was accompanied by an almost instantaneous urge to pick up my phone. And so there was this closure that I was noticing happening in my own mind, a closing down, like turning away from my own internal experience. But then on top of that, I also noticed that there was a, a closure happening in a more external sense. And that is that I was starting to close down to anyone who disagreed with me, anyone who had a different perspective on politics. And that's when I realized I wasn't alone here, that in some yeah. ways, I think this is the problem of our time, right? Yeah. Like these two forms of closure, screen addiction and political polarization have captured the modern mind. And, you know, if you if you listen to conversations with friends, you'll you'll hear this happening, uh, maybe not explicitly, but you'll hear people talking about being distracted and I'm so stressed and I can't stop looking at my phone. And you'll hear their complaints against the opposite political party or candidate that they hate. And underneath all of that is some form of closure. And I think that's why, in some senses, this really is the problem of our time, because we all know that it's happening but it's happening subconsciously. It's it's like invisible. It's difficult to see. And in, so but that's in where... your but in your humble opinion, how did this bifurcation occur? Um, the dissonance between it's like between right. It, there's no like bringing people together. I mean, you wrote a book called The Morality of Spin. I mean, I think we have political figures today, regardless of Trump. There's tons of them, Trump included, that are distracting people about issues that they finally feel very charged about. But prior to this, never really had social media to express themselves. How? What's the way out of that quagmire? I'm sure there's plenty of people out there listening right now. They're like going, wow, this guy really hit on something. Yeah, I knew that was it, but I have my point. I don't like that guy, right? So it's hate, it's not compassion. Yeah, well, I mean, so first of all, I think the statistics really do tell us that there's something new going on here. So in 1980, 47% of Americans felt warm and favorable toward the opposite party. In 2020, that number drops basically in half to 25%. Mm -hmm. I was writing my first political philosophy book in the early 2000s or early to mid 2000s, 2005, 2006. And at that time, there was definitely polarization happening. But most political scientists at the time pointed out that the, the polarization we were seeing was really an elite phenomenon. So it was confined mostly to politicians, pundits, people on TV, et cetera. And what I've noticed shift is that all of a sudden it's like, polarization has gone mainstream. It's no longer just something you see on, you know, Fox News or MSNBC. It's something you might see at your family reunion or your school board meeting. And I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons for this transformation, probably the, the foremost being just the way in which we now consume information, that we have this ability now to totally customize and curate our information environment so that all we're listening to is one perspective, right? We, as soon as we find a, a point of view that we that we find somehow antithetical to what we believe in, or you know, uncomfortable, we unfollow the person, or we stop looking at that news site, or whatever. And and I think that's created a strange phenomenon where we keep getting more and more sort of confined in our own little echo chambers, hanging out with people who think and read the same news as us. And, and basically living in this kind of siloed informational environment where it's really difficult then to see the other side, to, to even understand the other side. Well, the polarization is extreme at this point in our country. Um, and I don't think it's doing, uh, in my humble opinion, um, any, any way is it bringing collaboration about, you can see by Congress, they keep kicking the ball forward, uh, and even on budgetary things, uh, they don't seem to be seen. I'm not certain of everything because I get my news like you do from all these various sources. Um, 
getting done what they need to get done for the people. And uh, I think people get exasperated by the whole thing. It's like uh, they just kind of throw up their arms. And this brings me to this question. You mentioned that our addiction to the screen and digital devices happens slowly and over years, which is probably true for every listener out there right now. Um, speak with us about opening our mind and what it means to live with this expansive mind. I mean, you just made reference to it with, you know, us getting feeds from one area versus another. But to expand our mind, I remember um, Stephen Kotler was on here speaking about flow. And he said, if you really want to expand your mind and you all you read is business magazines, why don't you read Architectural Digest? Why don't you read something different from what you normally read? And that really stuck with me. Um, because I find myself reading stuff that I only want to read, not what I wouldn't think about reading. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think you're right that there's a way in which closure is closely associated with comfort, right? So if you think about your relationship with your device, for most of us, the reason we're checking our devices so often is that it's actually in a strange way comfortable. Right? We get this short burst of dopamine in our brain. We get the experience of novelty, some new fact. And so when it comes to the practices of opening and just the concept itself, what we're talking about here is a mindset shift that's pretty radical. And there's sort of three levels to this that I like to talk about. One is that there's a shift in the focus of our mind. So when we're in a closed state, we have this experience of unconscious mind wandering, mind wandering being the psychological term for, you know, getting lost in thoughts about the past and future. And when we open, there's a shift from that state of unconscious mind wandering to being a little bit more present, being aware of the present moment, being aware sometimes even of, of our attention itself. So that's one dimension. The second is there's this shift in the attitude of mind. So if you think about the last time you were really stressed out or distracted. There's an experience there that's subtle, but it's one of kind of like withdraw, of like pulling away from the experience you're having, pulling away from life. And when we open, we're shifting that as well from withdraw to something more like approach. So instead of turning away from distraction, turning away from the present moment, we're approaching it, even if it might be uncomfortable or painful or involve certain emotions that we don't like to feel. And then I think the most important quality in all of this is the final one, which is the size of the mind itself changes. So in a closed mind, it's almost like we're looking at our life or reality through this long and dark tunnel. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an experience we've all had, right? You know, when you're really overwhelmed or really stressed out, it feels like all you can see is that source of frustration or that project or person that's stressing you out. The size of our mind, our mental field just sort of reduces down to this really small tunnel-like experience. And the magic of opening, I do think it's kind of magical, is that there's this expansion in the size of the mind itself. And this is also something that everyone has experienced, even though you might not have called it opening, this feeling of like, a little bit more space in the mind, more perspective, being able to see the big picture. And that I think is, is the big deal about opening. And, you know, it made it not sound like a big deal. Oh, just a little more space or size of the mind. But, but that's the difference between responding and reacting. It's the, it's the gap between stimulus and response that allows us to build new habits. It's the space of possibility, the space of curiosity, the space of creativity I mean, there's there's so much that can happen in that space. And that's why I think it's kind of a magical practice and a magical thing to play with in your life. Certainly is. And I and it brings me to discomfort, uncertainty, and the fact that, you know, the only way we can grow is to have those levels of discomfort in our life. But we've been programmed. Um, from a neurological standpoint, almost like fight or flight. 
So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to run from this. I don't want to address this, right? I'm going to like put it under the carpet or put it in the backseat of the car or the trunk of the car and move on with the things that I believe are important. And I think you use this analogy about the tantric path of sacred, um, what you call continuity. I really loved it because um, it, it was a, a great analogy, but you, if you could speak with us about your personal experience about going into binging and watching TV, which you did, which I just thought was crazy. And what you emerged realizing from this experiment, also in that same site, it's a two-point question, can you cite some of the statistics about how much we're closing to versus opening our minds through our screens uh, instead? Yeah. Well, because I, I thought the part about the TV was like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and watch TV all day today. And I'm like, really? Who does a, who, who does that? But it was a great experiment right. for you. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the context here, how much we're closing to screens Nielsen estimates the average American spends 11 hours a day on screens. Deloitte Consulting found that 96% of us check our devices within an hour of waking. I think 50% of American teenagers describe themselves as having a significant addiction to their phones. There are these crazy sort of would you rather style survey questions where they ask, would you rather spend a month without your pet or your smartphone? 40% of people choose their phone over their pet. Would you rather spend a month without your significant other or your smartphone? 44% of people wow. choose their smartphone over their significant <laughs> other. Would you rather spend a month without sex or your smartphone? 56% of people choose their phone over sex, right? So crazy statistics. I like to cite those only because they show that this problem is real. This is not like overblown. Oh, you know, whatever. We're on our screens a lot. So, so starting with that as the context, I thought it would be really interesting to really experience closure in a different way. And what I mean by that is that I have been trying for years, like many of us, to implement all sorts of screen time techniques and hacks, you know, to not look at my phone so much. And it's basically this relationship of resistance between me and my devices. So what I thought would be really interesting is to apply this tantric Buddhist practice often called feast practice, where the idea is what would happen if you consciously overindulge in some of these things that create craving, you know, and it's often used with like sex or drinking or food. But I thought, wouldn't that be interesting to do with my screen? So I spent three days basically just binging on my screen all day, every day. It was like this all you can eat buffet of little dopamine hits that I was gorging on. And what I, I noticed a couple of really interesting things. So the first thing I noticed is that the connection between screens and insomnia is real. You know, we hear a lot about don't look at your screens before you go to bed. When I was binging on that much screen time, I was up every morning at like 2.50, no hope of going back to sleep. So that was super interesting. But the thing that was most interesting is that I started to really understand the thing that's drawing us to our screens is this experience of novelty. Like you pick up your phone, you go through the lock screen and it's the novelty of seeing the new texts or you go to your email, it's the novelty of new email messages or your newsfeed or your social media, whatever that is. And so paradoxically by going all the way with my screens and overindulging for days at a time, I had this experience of almost like destroying the superpower of my phone. So I woke up the day after this and I had the thought, oh, this is where I usually grab my phone and I go to the bathroom. And the thought just like totally fell flat. There's no desire. So it was kind of interesting to me that, that we could use a tool like this, which sounds crazy, obviously, to in some ways like undermine the central power of our devices itself, this ability to give us the experience of novelty. I like how you did that because uh, the overindulgence part of it would actually become, I would think to most people, if they tried it, quite boring. Um, you know, it, become, it becomes less 
stimulating than it did when you first started and do, were doing it periodically, right? Because you're periodically yeah. giving yourself that dopamine. You know, I had, you cited the book Hooked by Neryal, and um, he was on this show not that long ago speaking about uh, Hooked. And he, you discuss this point that he made about addictions being around variability, which you were just saying, because that's mm-hmm. the next new email. Uncertainty. Hey, is there a supply a surprise? Somebody going to send me a million dollars today via some email that I'm going to get, or is something really great going to happen? Or is a new client coming in via, you know, this, the cell phone. And so, especially this this mystique around ooh something new something exciting something's going to happen that's going to be good um and as it relates to connecting to the screen speak about that because you know uh Nia did a lot of research you've done a lot of research and i think this whole concept of variability meaning it's new it's unique and it's uncertain is is really true. Yeah, I love Nier's work. And I think he really is an interesting authority because he was one of the people like building these technologies into the some of the original yeah. devices and original apps hooked. and things like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's how you know he and, knew how to hook people. Totally. Well, and he has this really great example or analogy to illustrate the difference between the world we experience in sort of the analog realm, real life versus the virtual world, where he talks about, you know, you open the door to your refrigerator and the experience you have isn't variable at all, right? You open the door, everything that was in there last night is still in there. But if you were to add a variable reward, meaning some sort of uncertain possible outcome to that system, you would be essentially creating a smartphone app. So his example is like, imagine every time you opened your refrigerator door, there was some new treat there that just appeared, right? Like all of a sudden you open it and there's a little piece of chocolate cake there. All of a sudden, like your refrigerator would become much more enticing. You'd want to open that door more because you never know what treat's going to be there. That feature of variability is pretty difficult to design into our analog world but it's extremely easy to design into the virtual world. And I think it explains why so many of us are getting sort of, our attention's getting derailed from our actual life and into our virtual life because our virtual experience is full of these kinds of variable rewards, these uncertain outcomes, you know, and and in fact, they're designed into the apps themselves, right? Like every time you go onto Instagram, your feed is fresh. Even if you were there five minutes ago, you get a fresh feed when you come back. There's something new. And in that sense, it's actually pretty similar to other forms of behavioral addiction. You know, if you think about a gambling addiction, the person who's at the side of the casino who can't stop pulling the lever on the slot machine, what is it that they're actually doing there? Well, they're pulling the lever, but they're getting that experience of variability when the the dials finally settle and they see like, did I get four bars across or whatever it is, you know, and win something. That's pretty much the same thing as what happens when we pull out our phone that we're getting this, this surprising reward. And as you say, usually it's not actually that great. Like every time I open my email, there's a part of me that thinks maybe there's something really great here. And I would say one out of a thousand times, that's true. Yeah. And yet I keep coming back for more. It's crazy. Well, it, Brings me to this, and you cited somewhere in the book, um, I was honored last year to actually, in December, to go to Healthy Minds Institute, Richie Davidson, and all the studies that he's done with Dalai Lama. So I flew to Wisconsin. And, you know, you know the story, but my listeners maybe don't. You know, Richardson was studying anxiety prior to studying compassion when the Dalai Lama told him, hey, I think what you ought to do is really study the brainwaves around compassion versus anxiety. And as I met with Richie, I thought, wow, he dedicated 30 years of his life now to studying compassion. Now, this is self-compassion, compassion with others, doing for others. And I think that when people get anxious, 
if they get outside of themselves through some act other than self-serving, they can, and I, I'm looking for your thought on this, they can break that addiction and also uh, remove themselves from the anxiety. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I think compassion and compassionate giving, doing something where it's you're completely doing it for someone else, you have a tendency to forget about all this shit. I agree with that. Absolutely. I think that there is this experience of anxiety that we all have that's uncomfortable. And the question then becomes, okay, in that state of discomfort, what do we do? Mm-hmm. And to your point, the habitual path of least resistance is often engaging in some sort of compulsive habit that's probably not the best thing for us, right? So maybe it's picking up your smartphone, maybe it's overeating, maybe it's drinking, right? Like there are a lot of different ways that we can mollify that experience of anxiety, but, but that habitual path of least resistance is often not the best path. If we can have that awareness that you're talking about, where it's like, okay, I'm experiencing this uncomfortable state of anxiety and see it from a little bit bigger perspective, create a little bit more of that space in the mind that we were talking about. You called it meta-awareness. Yeah, meta-awareness is sort of the so, technical term so I in think, science. I think define that for the listeners because you relate, you speak about it in the book. Yeah. So meta-awareness, it's exactly what I was just talking about. It's that ability to disentangle your sense of self from what's happening in the mind. So often, you know, we're just sort of like our mind is wandering. There are all these various mental habits that are running the show and we don't even know that it's happening. I think that's the most important thing to see there. When we can see it happening in real time, be like, oh, wow. I'm feeling anxious. That in itself is like a, a revolution in the mind because all of a sudden now there's a little bit of awareness and there's a little bit of a distinction between the thing that's watching the anxiety and the anxiety. It's not like tethered together. And so that's where I think we start to get this freedom to, to your point, maybe we say, hey, instead of checking the smartphone this time, I'm gonna call up my relative, my mom, see how they're doing. I'm going to go help out my child. I'm going to go help my neighbor shovel the snow, right? There's all sorts of like micro actions of compassion and contribution that can be so powerful, but, but we have to have a little bit of that awareness first, because otherwise these habits are just so strong. So many years of conditioning behind them. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the guy from Stanford. I interviewed not that long ago on tiny habits, but yeah. BJ Fogg. Yeah. BJ, BJ. And you know, at this point, I think, needs to be addressed. So if you would speak to the listeners about the fact that screen addiction points to a fact that could be a deeper emotional wound that hasn't been healed. Now, I don't think that people correlate that. It's like, what are you talking about, dude? You're out of your mind. And the reason is, like I said, they want to brush that under the carpet they don't really want to de- address that uncomfortableness. Can you address the issue? Also speak about, we did a little bit, but this political polarization and how we have become closed-minded, which you did, but I think closed-minded to a, a really to a fault. You are actually saying some of the things that you did. And I think one of my questions was around you going the NRA and going to a gun uh a place where you were experiencing something in the foothills. And then you, you know, you, you said, Hey, people in Boulder, politically Boulder's not a gun town, but 35 miles outside of Boulder, there's a guy with guns. And then you, to your surprise, talk about polarization. He wasn't so polarized. He was quoting Buddhist stuff. And then I I thought that was a pretty cool part. So talk with us about that, if you would. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the first point there is a really important one, which is that the relationship many of us have to our screens is what we might call a mild to moderate behavioral addiction. So different Uh than a substance abuse addiction, but similar to something like gambling addiction, shopping addiction, where there's a behavior that's compulsive and addictive in some manner. 
And Nir Yal actually makes this point really nicely that there is a sense in which these addictions have their own momentum, but often what's really driving them is that we're trying to escape from some significant emotional trauma or uh, you know, really uncomfortable mind state. And so this just, it gives us a pathway of pleasure that's sort of easy to traverse. And, and so it really is true that for many of us, what's anchoring this addiction, yes, it's the, the compulsive nature of checking our devices all the time. And if we can, you know, use behavioral hacks and things like that, that can be helpful, but it's also often some sort of deeper form of psychological distress or, you know, unprocessed trauma, things like that, that can be at the root of all this. So, so that's, that's one point that I think is worth making. And then you were talking about polarization and, you know, how do we overcome this experience of seeing the other side as just a bunch of morons or the enemy or whatever it is, which is kind of like the, the rut that our culture has fallen into. And so in order to explore that for myself, you know, I, I live here in Boulder, Colorado, very liberal town. I'm sort of a left of center kind of guy, pro-gun control, things like that. And so I thought it would be really interesting to just immerse myself in a very different political echo chamber. So I ended up signing up for the National Rifle Association course here in Colorado <laughs> for getting my concealed carry permit. And I actually now have my concealed carry permit. I don't concealed carry, but I could <laughs> if I wanted to. And it was just, it was such an amazing experience. Cause you know, like I, I went to a, a rural town in Colorado and, and ended up spending the day with people who I would never interact with in normal life. But I think what became clear by the end of that is that there was no enemy here that mm -hmm. yes, these people, they believe something differently than, than I believe. They have different views on guns. Ultimately, I found that th the real difference was that they have a different view of human nature. And we can talk about that if that's interesting. But I came to see that, you know, we're all just trying to do our best here. These are good people. And for me, that was actually this just like mind-blowing opening experience. I could never look at politics the same way afterwards because... Now I had kind of created these relationships, friendships with people who believed something totally antithetical to everything I believed in. It's really interesting you use that as a way to kind of fully shift yourself into um, a world which you had never kind of crossed into. Uh, and when you left, the experience was not bad. It was, it opened your mind, just like we're saying, this is called Open, that's the name of the book. And I know for many of my listeners, they're going to go, wow, that was a pretty big step you took. I might be afraid to do that. Um, I really wouldn't want to do something that radical. And I think there's small steps that we can take. Now, you, this goes back a ways, obviously, but... Um, you ended up in Cuba to experience your first opening, you said. And other experience you had, you spoke about it a lot about your aunt, happened at 35,000 feet. You're not a big flyer. You don't like flying in an airplane. You get anxious and have anxiety attacks, or you did at the time. Maybe not now. And could you tell the listeners about your openings, plural, uh, one was at 35,000 feet and one was in Cuba on the beach. If I think, if I remember correct. Yeah. Well, I like to use those two examples to illustrate the different sides of opening. So one of these experiences, I was 20, I was living in Cuba in Havana. I went to this beautiful beach, you know, and here I was, didn't have all the the hustle and bustle of my life back at, as a, as a college sophomore. And I had this experience of just my mind going still and, and this feeling of just like an expansion of awareness. And I didn't really have the words to wrap around all of that at the time. Right. right. Looking back, I would say that was one of those experiences where the mind just felt bigger, more expansive.
And it was a very blissful, pleasurable experience. But I think this opening of the mind can happen in a totally opposite way as well. And so the other experience I write about happened eight years later when I had I had just gotten to the end of my PhD program. I had a pretty severe bike accident. So I was experiencing a concussion and, you know, my mind was kind of whirling with dizziness. I had really bad tinnitus. And I got to this stage after that bike accident where doing almost anything was like so hard. The fatigue was so deep. And, you know, even going to the grocery store was like running a marathon. And I had to fly to this family get together. Mm -hmm. And I faced this really crazy choice. Do I get on this plane? Knowing that like I was in no condition to do this. So tired. So just like blasted by this bike accident. Or do I not? I ended up getting on the plane and and I had this experience of just like, crazy, profound anxiety. But then at a certain point, I had what I would call an experience that was more like opening where I realized I had no control over my situation. There was nothing I could do. You know, here I was trapped at 35,000 feet. I remember just like begging God, like, please help me, please help me. And it was in that moment that there was a kind of opening experience that happened. The mind got bigger, even though it was a very different doorway than the one in Cuba. I like to describe it as the doorway of just like intense suffering versus bliss. Well, I think the term is overused many times, but at certain points, like in that airplane, you have to let go. Now, letting go means a lot of different things to a lot of people. But to allow yourself to... um, go into the experience so you can get out of the experience, right? In other words, like you're saying, some of these things are, I've got to walk into it. I've got to be uncomfortable. You were totally uncomfortable in that airplane. And then when you took deep breaths, I remember reading and just asking God for help and walking into it and understanding that, you know, I'm caught here. I got however long left in this plane. Um, I have to, I'm responsible for changing this experience. I'm responsible for changing this experience. And there are certain techniques and things that people can do to actually shift that. And one of them, because there's a lot of people that use microdosing, ketamine, drugs uh, to get away from anxiety. They got PTSD. You went to this controlled center. Uh, One October morning, you were talking with your best friend, Andrew, and you're on this hike in Colorado. And he says, well, you're writing this book. Are you not going to address, you know, microdosing drugs or just drugs uh, and explore psychedelics as a way to open? Um, Can you tell us about this controlled experimentation that you went through, which you finally did? You didn't want to. But you did, and I think you were a great experiment for this book, uh, (laughs) to actually take smaller doses than a larger dose, and you turn it up with 200 milligrams in the end of ketamine. Um, What happened, and what happened when you doubled the dosage? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I was not planning to write about psychedelics at all. No, I know you weren't. And, but but Andrew swayed you. <laughs> but my mind, my mind started to shift because I, you know, there's so much amazing science coming out about the potential of these compounds, and I started to see that there's a really important distinction here between the compounds, psychedelics, you know, LSD, yeah. psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, and psychedelic-assisted therapy, pairing these compounds with an intentional structure of support and a skilled guide. So that really opened me up to the idea. And at a certain point, I realized, like, if I'm really going to explore this idea of opening, I've got to be open to this. So mm-hmm. I want to I understand this. So to your point, I had this um, a, a session, which was more of a large dose ketamine-assisted session with my therapist, where I happened to be flying to Orange County in a couple of days before, just after the session. So I was 
I could feel like a little bit of background anxiety about flying happening in my mind. And I, you know, took the drug, put on the eye mask, put on the earphones. And then all of a sudden it was like I was on a plane. You know, it wasn't a real plane. It was a plane that only existed in my mind, but it felt like I was on a commercial airline. I was flying somewhere and it was almost identical to the experience of flying in real life. But for one thing, there was no fear, no anxiety. And for somebody who had experienced flight anxiety since 9-11, really 20 years, that was wild. And so then, you know, I'm flying on this plane and the, the walls of the plane are dissolving. And then all of a sudden I actually went back to that moment that we were just talking about the mid-flight meltdown, right? When I was in my late 20s at the end of graduate school. Right. And I was able to re-experience that moment, but with none of the associations of fear and anxiety. And in fact, what I saw is like, that was a moment where something in me just cracked open and, and I could see like the beauty of that moment. And then I actually experienced the plane going down and crashing and, you know, saw myself vaporized by the the flames. And it was just like, again, seeing this horrific thing that was like the worst case scenario of my mind, but seeing it with none of the fear. And I think that's, that's like the real power of pairing psychedelics with therapy and this intentional structure of support is that there is a way that we can re-experience some of the, the most traumatic things that may have ever happened to us or we can approach some of those corners of the mind that are almost impossible to touch in ordinary consciousness. And I started to see that is just like an incredible gift. And for me, it completely changed my experience of flying. You know, it's been two years and it, it's a totally different experience for me now when I get on an airplane. Well, you opened your mind to the extent that you were able to see something different and actually feel it. And it felt real. And I think Sometimes yeah. when you go through those experiences that the reality of what is, is accentuated and it allows you to remove the fear from what you'd made up. So you yeah. made up all this other shit about the plane. Yeah, you can die in the plane. That's for certain. But, you know, what are the, what is the likelihood of it? So you spoke in the book about non-drug psychedelic experiences. So, I want you to combine this with another question, which is you state to open the mind isn't to add anything new to the mind. It really is more about returning the mind to the natural state. And so what I'd like to have you speak to the listeners about is loving kindness and compassion practices as a way to open the mind. And I think for most of our listeners, they're going to understand this. Um, I don't think I've ever seen more expansive minds than the people, many of the people that were at the Healthy Minds Institute, Richie Davidson, Dalai Lama events, where I've actually been and, you know, seeing him talk. And, and, he, and then you think about, boy, that gentleman's mind is just all about love and compassion. I'm not certain that he thinks about anything else. Yeah. And I don't know if he has anxiety or not, but I kind of doubt it. Right. You know, I think as I think the other thing too is your life experiences. I'm going to be 70 in July. And I think as your life experiences continue to move forward and you add to the the playbook you realize that much of the stuff you've made up during your life and then you spend a lot of your life undoing what you made up to get to the new reality that you'd like to have mm. because we're you know i call it msu making shit up we're really good at that and then we're really good at believing what we made up that person doesn't like me. How do you know? I don't know. They looked at me wrong. Like, really? How do you know that person doesn't like you? Well, I went through my whole life with that person not liking me. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, yeah, I love that you brought up compassion and kindness. 
How does that relate to opening? And I think there's a really tight connection there. Mm -hmm. You also brought up this idea of like, opening isn't about adding anything new to the mind. I think the the way I would describe that connection is that openness isn't about changing our experience. And I think this was a lesson I had to learn again and again and again. And I talk about this a lot in the book that, you know, it's easy to identify openness with a state that feels really good. You know, like the sky-like mind, you know, when you feel amazing and you're at the end of a hike or you're at the end of yoga, lying in Shavasana, you know, like it's easy to identify that as the experience of opening and then set up your whole life around the goal of feeling awesome like that. And then shame yourself for all the other moments in life, which are probably, you know, far more vast, where you don't feel that way, where you feel like crap, where you're tired, where you feel anxious, where you're angry, whatever. And so I think the the lesson that that kept emerging throughout this project is that real opening is about opening to things exactly as they are, opening to your own mind exactly as it is. Whether that's feeling amazing, whether that's feeling terrified, whether that's feeling overwhelmed and the way that I think that relates to compassion is that the, at its deepest essence, I think compassion is, Pema Chodron talks about it as like this experience of unconditional friendliness toward yourself mm-hmm. and others. And and that's so difficult to do, but when we're able to do that, there's a way in which we are opening ourselves to our own experience, whatever that might be, right? Unconditional friendliness says, when you wake up in the morning and you feel like shit and you don't want to do your day, like being okay with that experience in that moment and just allowing yourself to stay there. So, so that I think is maybe the connection. I think, that... I think that's a big part of opening because, yeah. and here's why, you know, our ego says we can be more. So we're always distracted by that, but are we not really a tr- true, more true to ourselves if we're kind to ourselves? Yeah. Meaning meaning no matter what that state is, that is the opening. The totally. opening is to trust yourself, be kind to yourself, and love yourself for who you are, no matter where the heck you are or what state you're in. Um, and again, that's actually when you think about it, what you and I are talking about is not complicated. It's a state of mind that exists as a result of an experience that says i'm okay with me just the way i am yeah that that, that's it now when you move into that state of hey i'm gonna go see the people at the nra like you did and you go with that new state of consciousness and high heightened awareness you find out that it's not that difficult to be with those people yeah, and I think right? you're right that at the root of that, there's some form of compassion there for oneself, compassion and for others. one's uh-huh. one's enemies, people yeah. who you find difficult. Yeah, yeah, and you you talked about it an opening to the enemy, and I and I want to. That's the chapter that you address the Hercules weaponry thing and I, for my right. listeners. Now, like I I kind of want to uh, bring our uh, podcast to a closure, and your book. To all my listeners, you know, go out and get a copy of Open, Nate Klimt's book. It is truly, it's not a hard read. It's filled with great stories. Uh, He uses, he's fun. It's upbeat. He tells stories about himself. So he's not worried about doing that. Um, And all the way through, you're going to learn from his own experiences. So please do get it. You know, you guide, you've, you have guided meditations available for the listeners at your website, www.nateklemp.com, K-L-E-M-P.com. What are three takeaways that you'd leave with our listeners uh, that they could start working on immediately, uh, like right after we're done closing this podcast down, to reduce their addictions to the digital media and expand their minds to a new world of possibilities? Yeah. Well, first thing I would say is to get really curious 
about what is the what are the ways you close down to your life? We each have our own idiosyncratic forms of closure. You know, for some people it's sports, for some people it's gambling, for some people it's news or social media. So so get really curious about that. That would be thing one, just to become more aware. The second thing would be to come up with some strategies. And I have a number of these in the book, but you can look beyond my book. There are a lot of great resources here. Strategies for interrupting that momentum of closure. So ways to design your environment, design your time, design your device itself so that you're creating a little bit more friction in between you and this thing that that may be taking you away from putting your attention on what matters most. The final thing, thing three, would be to just identify a couple practices that you could use to experience a little bit more of this quality of openness that we've been talking about. So psychedelic-assisted therapy is one option. That's a very difficult option. It's not for everyone. It can be uh, you know, time-intensive. It can be expensive, et cetera. Meditation is another option, what I call street meditation or street opening. So, you know, when you're at the store, you're waiting in traffic, all those throwaway moments of life, using those as moments to just become a little bit more open and aware of, of what's going on. Um, and, and there are a lot of other tools that, you know, can lead to this experience of opening, learning another language, traveling, having really interesting conversations, sex, right? Like, there's so many different ways we can open, but to find one or two of these things that you can do to just give yourself a little bit more of that experience. Those would be my my top three. And I, I would say one more thing. To find this place of opening, don't add to anything. It's not about, like you said, adding more. I don't need another device that reminds me and clicks on the phone and says, here's your notifications or something that some tool that you think you need. Just turn it off, right? I mean, from a screen standpoint, turn it off. Uh, turn off everything at a certain time before you go to bed. You know, the blue light we know does affect people. I'd also say add to this, you know, having a really good night's rest before you start the next morning and then starting the next day with gratefulness and intentions is also a huge benefit to opening because it's saying, hey, I'm blessed. I woke up this morning. I'm here. I, I give thanks for everything that I have. So I, I think that gratitude is it. Compassion for yourself and others, which you said. And really, these are simple little things you can do. You don't have to change much of anything to actually find that opening. You don't have to change a lot. So totally. I'm going to guide everybody, go get this book, do it and do it. There we go. Is it still blurry? It is a little bit. Uh, and make certain that you go to his website, nateklimp.com. Look at the meditations, the free meditations. He's got all kinds of resources that he also mentions in the book too. other books he cites and so on. So, Namaste to you. Thanks, Nate, for being on Inside Personal Growth, spending some time with our listeners, informing them about how to really be open, open their mind. Loved it. It was great. Namaste. Thank you, Greg. So great to be here. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.